0: Welcome, guys, to our second episode of Muscle Disorders. To quickly recap what we've covered in the previous episode of muscular dystrophies, we talked about Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is an X-linked muscular dystrophy in the DMD mutation that stabilizes the sarco- sarcolemma membrane. Um, typically, children would fail to meet motor milestones with Gower maneuver. Um, age of noticing symptoms would be around 2 to 3. And then around 12 to 13, they might stop walking, and age of death tend to be early 20s. Uh, Dilated cardiomyopathy, as well as hyperventilation contractures, are some systemic involvements. CK is typically extremely high. And then Becker's is very similar, milder. Instead of a frame-shift mutation like in Duchenne, it's an in-frame mutation. Um, it will be a slower progression of disease, around 5 to 7 is when the symptom onset would typically happen. The histopathology, you would see loss of dystrophin protein at the sarcolemal membrane on staining, as well as a typical myopathic pattern. Corticosteroids at a lower dose could be helpful as a treatment option. The second dystrophy that we covered is fascia humeral, which involves facial, periscapular, biceps and triceps, as well as occasional perineal region involvement, which could happen later in the course. It's an autosomal dominant pattern of inheritance. It's an adult onset dystrophy. Um, Typically they would have the face showing a transverse smile, difficulty in closing the lips, can't whistle or use a straw. Cardiac arrhythmias could happen as well as mental retardation and seizures. Also, people could be wheelchair-bound later in their life. The third one we covered is limb girdle muscular dystrophy. Um, It's your typical proximal symmetric weakness. It's typically adult onset. Uh, LGMD genetic testing is how we uh, would typically go about diagnosis. Type 1b has cardiomyopathy as a very associated condition with it, and it's a laminase C protein abnormality. Type 1C is uh, more associated with childhood um, weakness and around age 5, you would notice the prominent weakness. Type 2A is the calpain 3, which as a buzzword would be gluteal involvement, and 2D is typically quads involvement. Um, in general, type 1 tends to be dominant, autosomal dominant pattern of inheritance. Type 2 is typically an autosomal re- recessive inheritance. Um, EMG um, in all these dystrophies kind of would show your typical myopathic pattern, which is early recruitment, low amplitude, and short duration. The one that's prominent uh, EMG finding would be myotonic dystrophy, which to quickly recap, it would have myotonia, cardiac conduction abnormalities, as well as cataracts. Typical findings on the exam you would see um, is uh, your grip myotonia, which signifies what the dystrophy is, which is inability to relax muscles, um, and there's a warm up phenomena associated with it. They have typical facial characteristics of tall and slender, weak mouth, sometimes it could be symmetric ptosis, down or absent reflexes. Um, the pattern of inheritance is typically autosomal dominant. You have type 1, which is the most common, which is a mutation in the DMPK trinucleotide repeat with anticipation, and the repeat is typically CTG. Type 2 is in chromosome 3, which is the zinc finger 9 protein, and it's typically a tetranucleotide repeat, CCTG. Typical systemic involvement is conduction abnormalities like we previously mentioned. Those are the people with sudden death. Um, GI tract, mental involvement, endocrine involvement like diabetes and infertility and the EMG is the, your typical rubbing engine. The histopathology would typically be show pycnotic clumps. Alright, so we had started talking about congenital mus- muscular dystrophies um, and we can uh, continue to go in depth about important information for us.
1: Yeah, so... There's a lot of uh, debate about what's a congenital muscular dystrophy, what's a congenital myopathy. Uh, the answer is sort of always changing and is a little bit unclear right now. And I think depending on who you ask, it would probably give you a different definition. But uh, I think of congenital muscular dystrophies as diseases that progress like, uh, you know, those sort of more classic muscular dystrophies. So they're often presenting uh, with a hypotonic or a floppy baby. Uh, however, mm-hmm. they they tend to lead to progressive weakness as opposed to the congenital myopathies, which lead to sort of a fixed weakness. Uh, the nice mm-hmm. thing is, um, in general, you can remember these are all autosomal recessive. Uh, so that's a mm-hmm. nice, uh, helpful definition. And they're often called MDCs, which is uh, muscular dystrophy, coma congenital, uh, and used to be designated as MDC1, MDC2, uh, et cetera. But they also have eponymous names uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the pathophysiology, there are sort of a few different categories. Um, a lot of them are associated with uh, mutations in the myrosin protein, uh, so dysfunctional myrosin, which is part of the dystrophin glycoprotein complex that anchors dystrophin to the sarcolemmal membrane. Uh, but there are some other proteins involved as well, and we'll talk about uh, two of those in particular that you should probably know. So the first one is Ulrich congenital muscular dystrophy. Uh, it's uh, allelic with Bethlehem congenital muscular dystrophy. And we talked a little bit about this uh, in the adult muscular dystrophies. Uh, Ulrich is yes. the more severe form, <laughs> and it's autosomal recessive. Uh, it's uh, also due to a mutation in the collagen 6A or col 6A gene. And really, it's, it has features of a connective tissue disorder as well. So along with being hypotonic and weak and having some muscular atrophy, sort of a proximal pattern, you get these proximal contractures that are really out of proportion to weakness. And so you'll see, uh, you know, children with unable to even passively extend their elbows, for instance. Uh, but you, at the same time, you get uh, distal joint hypermobility. So the fingers will be hyperextensible. One test we often do is can you push the thumb all the way down to the forearm, which would suggest that the wrist was hyperextensible or the, the thumb joint was hyperextensible. Uh, and just like in Bethlehem, you get these prominent, calcanei on the heels. Uh, Don't ask me why that happens. I'm sure somebody knows, but it's a good sort of buzzword uh, to remember. The other thing that you sometimes see or will get tested on is a high arched palate in the mouth.
0: Mm -hmm. Because we're in the topic and we can draw comparisons. Could you just remind us again uh, what Bethlehem was related to
1: when it comes to the adult
0: uh, muscular dystrophies we talked about?
1: Yeah, so Bethlehem is also a collagen mutation, col 6 a gene. Uh, and really, the the classic picture of Bethlehem is an adult that has uh, proximal sort of limb girdle type weakness with elbow uh-huh. contractures. And nine times out of 10 on an exam, you're going to see a picture of somebody who clearly has decreased motor bulk in the proximal upper extremities and then is unable to straighten their elbows. And that's sort of the okay. classic uh, phenotype of a Bethlehem muscular dystrophy. Clinically, I think it's the age of presentation and the severity of weakness that will distinguish the two. Uh, and then obviously, mm-hmm. you can do a little bit more with genetic testing and, and such to, to differentiate them. Excellent. The other one, I think, in terms of congenital muscular dystrophies, you want to know is Fukuyama muscular dystrophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a mutation in the Fukutin protein. This is an enzyme that glycosylates alpha dystroglycan. So, again, functionally plays a role in that uh, dystrophin glycoprotein complex. Uh, The reason I think it's often tested and talked about is it's the most common congenital muscular dystrophy in Japan. So there is this population in which it's much more prominent. Uh, Clinically, uh, as with all of these, you're going to see a floppy or hypotonic baby uh, who's weak. Oftentimes, uh, there'll be sort of a history, sometimes in retrospect, of decreased fetal movements. That's not necessarily diagnosed, but the mother will say, yeah, the baby didn't really kick or something like that. And actually what you Mm -hmm. see in the infant is called uh, an arthrogryposis uh, or arthrogryposis, depending on how you pronounce it. And what that really is, is a congenital joint contracture. So due to decreased movement and muscle weakness in the womb, the the joints don't fully form like they would. And you actually get this congenital joint contracture. So if you look at, let's say, the elbow, uh, not only will you be unable to straighten it, but you'll actually won't see a crease on the flexor surface because it was never really flexed in the womb. Mm. And so there's this decreased range of motion. Oftentimes, you also see uh, sort of a webbing where, you know, the skin would normally make a 90-degree angle at the elbow. It, it webs out a little bit uh, because, again, the elbow is not bending and extending like it should during development. And so those arthrogryposes are commonly found at the time of delivery uh, or at least shortly thereafter. Uh, unfortunately, this also has some pretty significant uh, brain abnormalities in these babies uh, with structural brain uh, abnormalities impaired cognitive function and seizures. So it's a little more of a multi-system disease than, say, Ulrich uh, congenital muscular dystrophy. And then the other one that we uh, should probably talk about is muscle-eye brain disease, only because it's exactly what it sounds like. So these are babies that have uh, hypotonia and muscle issues, but also have structural brain abnormalities, severe cognitive impairments, seizures, and then structural eye abnormalities. So Uh, myopia or glaucoma or cataracts will eventually form as well. Uh, And that obviously can have some uh, significant cognitive consequences for these babies too. I think those are really the three congenital muscular dystrophies you should know. Of course, there are are many others, Uh, but really for for exam purposes and uh, for those not going into pediatric uh, neuromuscular medicine, uh, that's probably sufficient for now.
0: Fair enough. All right. So just Kind of briefly summarize. So the congenital muscular dystrophies are significant for their progressive course, um, and then the the main ones that we can think of is Ulrich, uh, Fukuyama, and muscle eye brain disease. Um, Ulrich tends to to be you know they're all autosomal recessive. Ulrich we need to think about collagen six A, um, the Bethlem mutation. Uh, it's a connective tissue disorder. Proximal contractures, distal hypermobility. Uh, and prominent calcaneae and arched palate are things that we can think of. Fukuyama, um, uh, tend to be dominant in Japan, uh, uh decreased fetal movements, arthrogryposis, brain Here's. abnormalities, seizures, muscle eye brain is also have systemic involvement, uh, with seizures, myopia, and cataracts. So that's, that's a great review. Thanks, Jeff. We can move on to congenital myopathies.
1: Yes, the close cousin of congenital muscular dystrophy. So (laughs) again, I mean, you're going to think of both of these uh, sort of classes in the same baby. That's a someone, an infant who's born with decreased uh, muscle bulk or decreased tone and weakness. Uh, Often that's noticed early on as sometimes ventilatory weakness. uh, And infants with some of the severe forms can require ventilation. But you should really be ruling both of these out or approaching both of these diagnoses at the same time. In mm-hmm. hypotonic infants, uh, and is it
0: mainly genetic testing, uh, muscle biopsy? Like, how, how how do we typically go about it? And, and, and this might be a little bit outside of the realm of the exam, but just curious.
1: No, yeah. So it's uh, these days often genetic testing is probably jumped to more quickly. I think a lot of mm-hmm. uh, testing companies will offer a panel for congenital myopathies and congenital muscular dystrophies that you can send at the same time. Biopsy, uh, oh, biopsy is you know it's invasive. It's done less frequently. Uh, only because sometimes it's nonspecific. And we'll talk about how it's a little more specific in congenital myopathies, Uh, but just it's, I think, fallen a little bit out of fashion. So uh, the thing to know about congenital myopathies is they're actually, even within a a so-called disease, there are a number of different inheritance patterns, different genes, different phenotypes, uh, and they're really still categorized by their pathologic findings, even though, as we just kind of said, that's less commonly looked at now. Uh, mm-hmm. As a whole, congenital myopathies uh, are not as progressive. They tend to cause fixed weakness, although there's some evidence that they can be progressive over time. Uh, and uh, there really are no directed treatments for most of these. We'll talk about maybe one exception to that. Uh, the more important thing to know is a number of them are associated with uh, mutations in the ryanidine receptor, the RYR1 gene. And the reason that matters is because patients with these mutations can be at higher risk. For malignant hyperthermia uh, with inhaled anesthetics. Mm-hmm. So it's something that they need to know about uh, and tell anesthesiologists about down the road uh, before they have even elective surgeries. So we'll talk about three that I think, or maybe four, that I think are really important to know, um, mainly because of the pathologic findings, but then also some of these important implications. So uh, the first one is central core myopathy. Uh, this has uh I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but this has multiple forms of inheritance, both autosomal dominant, autosomal recessive, and this is one of the ones that is associated with this bryanidine RYR1 gene mutation, uh, in in one mm-hmm. of its forms. Uh, it looks a lot like a, a limb girdle disorder uh, and can present sometimes in infancy, sometimes in childhood, with progressive or at least initially progressive proximal weakness, uh, a waddling gait. Uh, you can see the Gowers sign exercise intolerance. Unlike some of the other congenital myopathies, it does not involve the uh, extraocular muscles or the lid elevator. So you won't see any ptosis or ophthalmoplegia here. Uh, And the thing that really distinguishes it in the end, uh, other than perhaps some genetic testing, is on histopathology, you see these central cores, and that's why it's called central core myopathy. And these are areas inside the muscle fibers that are pale staining on NADH stains. Uh, And it's not really known exactly why they form. There are sort of different subtypes of these. But if you see, for instance, a picture of a muscle biopsy and the center of the muscle has this area of pallor, uh, then that can tell you, uh, central muscle fiber has this area of pallor that can tell you that this is probably a central core myopathy. Excellent. The, The other one to know in terms of these sort of core diseases is a multi- or mini-core myopathy. Uh, And on path this looks like central core, except they're smaller and there are multiple cores. So again, it's fairly Mm. descriptive in the name. Uh, It's important to know because it also can be associated with a ryanidine mutation. Uh, And compared to central core, clinically, you'll probably see more prominent uh, respiratory weakness to the point that these, uh, even as babies, can require mechanical ventilation. Uh, And in childhood or even in infancy, you'll see uh, scoliosis, due to uh, uh, skeletal deformities from axial muscle weakness that can also be pretty severe and acquire surgical correction Mm -hmm. Uh, the next one you probably should know is called nemoline rod myopathy Uh, and guess what when you do the pathology you see these small rod-like formations uh, just under the sarcolemal membrane these are best seen on a Gomori trichrome stain Uh, by themselves they're actually not very specific so you can see these subsarcolemal rods in a number of disorders but in the right clinical picture, this really clues you in that this is nemoline rod myopathy. Uh, the, the most striking form of this is a severe infantile form. These babies are profoundly weak. They often require mechanical ventilation. Uh, the thing that distinguishes it from the other two that we've talked about so far is they can have very prominent extraocular muscle weakness, sirtosis or ophthalmoplegia. Uh, and so that, that really should clue you in that this may be nemoline rod. Uh, unfortunately this form is often fatal within the first year of life due to respiratory complications. And so it is really quite severe. Uh, there are more uh, mild later onset forms and those can be a little harder to distinguish without pathology or genetics. Mm-hmm. And then the last one we probably should talk about is centronuclear nuclear myopathy uh, only because it has such a, a distinct pathologic finding. So in a normal muscle biopsy, you want to see, less than 5% uh, percent usually of the fibers that have nuclei in the center. So the normal muscle fiber, all the nuclei are clustered around the edge of the fiber. Remember, these are multinuclear formations, these muscle fibers. In central nuclear myopathy, you can see up to 95% of the muscles have a nucleus in the middle. So it's really hard to miss if you know what you're looking for, and it's an easy get on an exam if you see a path slide of a muscle with a lot of central nuclei. Now, again, that finding is not specific. So really any myopathy can have some centralized nuclei, and some forms of this maybe only have 20 or 30 percent of the nuclei central. Um, But again, it's that overwhelmingly centralized nuclei that really distinguish this. The genetics are complex. There's X-linked forms, there's autosomal dominant, autosomal recessive forms, uh, and there really are a a lot of different phenotypes from severe infantile form to more uh, mild later childhood onset forms. So the clinically, it's not as distinct, but pathologically, it's quite distinct.
0: So in the myofibrillar myopathy, um, as you had kind of said before, that it now considered a muscular dystrophy?
1: Yeah, so this is one of those really gray areas between the two categories. But uh, myofibrillar myopathy uh, affecting the Desmond protein is now actually categorized as a limb-girdle muscular dystrophy, type 1. E. So it, it really oh, is probably the grayest know. area. Yeah. Um, but again, you can imagine that it has a proximal weakness uh, phenotype in those cases.
0: I see. And then just sort of buzzwords related to, to this excellent review. Um, so if we have the, the multiple inheritance pattern with an X-linked uh, 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 central nuclei, although nonspecific, then we can think about centronuclear nuclear uh, myopathy. Uh, nemelin rod myopathy is quite severe, weak, cry, ventilation early on, um, with the name implying nimelin on histopathology, um, and then the central and, and also involves a lot of extraocular muscle movement abnormalities, and um, the central core spares the extraocular muscles, uh, and then that's the rhinidine receptor, and um, you have the Gower Gau- the sign, and then the multi-center, uh, sorry, the multi-core is as the name implies, um, and also has a rhinidine mutation.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, especially with the core, the central core and multi-core, you can imagine that in the right patient, these actually might just look like Duchenne's, right? If you have a Gower sign and a Waddling gait So this is where genetic diagnosis has really become key in pediatric neuromuscular disorders, because there's so much crossover and variability between these various syndromes. Um, I'd encourage anyone who's interested in these to either grab your pathology book or just uh, hit the Internet and look at some you know, search the different diseases and, and really capture those pathologic images in your mind just because they're so uh, distinct.
0: Distinct. Great. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Jeff. And then, you know, we can move on to metabolic myopathies.
1: Yeah. So this is a really complex category. I think we'll try to simplify it as best we can. Uh, and, and complex only because, metabolic pathways are complex. And there are so many places for things to go wrong in terms of the different enzymes and proteins involved. So we'll really try and hit the major, I think, must-know metabolic myopathies. Mm -hmm. I think just in general, it's important to remember uh, sort of how muscle metabolism works. So we really have a couple different sources of energy in our muscle. There's uh, carbohydrates, and and really glucose is what we're talking about there, uh, that are metabolized early uh, in exercise and uh, and so we think about uh, diseases that either involve glucose uptake, uh, which is less common, or glycogen breakdown in the glucose, which is really where a lot of these diseases are going to lie. Uh, and then as we exercise longer or use our muscles for longer, we rely more on uh, fatty acid metabolism into glucose, which is a more complex process and takes a little bit longer and requires functional mitochondria. And so that these diseases will present themselves uh, more frequently in patients with prolonged exercise intolerance. And so we'll talk about each of those categories separately. A lot of people will throw mitochondrial myopathies into the broader category of metabolic myopathies. I think it it doesn't really matter, uh, although some people will consider them distinct. Again, just it does involve energy production. So I like to think of them as part of the metabolic family. Uh, Fair enough. There's really a wide range of diseases here. Uh, Some are, some cause static weakness. In other words, the patient is weak all the time, some cause dynamic weakness which really just means exercise intolerance. So the patient may be fine at rest, but then as they exercise either briefly or for a long period, they become weak and have other uh, symptoms of muscle uh, issue, including myoglobinuria, rhabdomyolysis, myalgias, cramps, uh, anything in that spectrum. So let's talk first about uh, the mitochondrial disorders, and we'll just get them out of the way because I think those worry a lot of people. Uh, They are actually pretty complex. Uh, Yeah, I I can hear it in your voice. So um, they are actually pretty complex, uh, mainly because the mitochondria is a really complex organelle. Uh, Remember that the mitochondria is home of the Krebs cycle. It's really our ATP powerhouse uh, and requires uh, both enzymes for that process, but also transporters and enzymes to prepare the necessary uh, ingredients for the Krebs cycle and get them into the mitochondria. mitochondrial inheritance is also very complex, you know, so we often think of these as maternal disorders, and that can be true in some cases. The The mitochondrial DNA itself is maternally inherited, but we inherit multiple copies that distribute themselves differently in the body, and so you see what's called heteroplasty or heteroplasmy, where different tissues are affected differently depending on what proportion of abnormal mitochondria is in that tissue. Uh, you can also see a process Uh, where the normal mitochondria in the tissue actually make up for the abnormal mitochondria. So that makes it even more complex. Uh, And it's also important to remember that a lot of proteins and enzymes involved in mitochondrial metabolism actually are coded in the nuclear DNA. So in a lot of these conditions, you can see uh, more autosomal patterns of inheritance, actually. Um, So unfortunately, it's not as simple as saying every mitochondrial disease follows a maternal inheritance pattern. And I say that not to confuse you, but just to actually, I think, liberate you from having to fit everybody into that one box. So we'll talk about a couple of the key disorders. I think the thing to remember is that most mitochondrial disorders are actually multi-system, maybe with some exceptions. Uh, One of the things they all seem to have in common is short stature. And this is another one of those things where I don't really know why. I'm sure somebody does. Uh, But it's important (laughs) to know uh, because it can give you kind of a clue. The other thing that's important to know in terms of implications is patients with mitochondrial disease uh, disorders that affect the muscle tend to be very sensitive to uh, either sedatives or even uh, sort of central nervous system depressants like benzodiazepines uh, and anesthesia as well and can be very hard uh, to extubate after anesthesia and sometimes that comes out of the blue for people so it's really important to remember and to tell patients about so they don't get the wrong medication or uh, get treated lightly Uh, when they have uh, general anesthesia. Uh, The classic pathologic finding that I think we all know is ragged red fibers. Uh, And this really describes the finding in Gomori trichrome staining. So these are patients who have these uh, damaged-looking fibers on their muscle that stain sort of bright red on Gomori trichrome or sort of a deep red as opposed to the bluish background. Uh, And this is what we mean by the ragged red fiber. But they look ragged on other staining as well. They just don't stand out as red from the background. So even on H&E stain, you can see these ragged fibers. Uh, and honestly, again, you'd have to talk to someone smarter than me to tell you what the ragged red <laughs> fiber is, other than it's a damaged fiber that is sort of broken down from this metabolic uh, disorder. So let's talk about MRF. MRF is myoclonic epilepsy with ragged red fibers. This is the classically tested mitochondrial disorder. Uh, and it is like it sounds. So again, it was named appropriately. These patients can actually be misdiagnosed as having juvenile myoclonic epilepsy early in their course because they develop uh, myoclonic episodes and generalized seizures in uh, early, early to late childhood or early adulthood. Uh, But unlike juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, there are multi-system disorders with these patients. So they can, first of all, have a myopathic phenotype have proximal weakness, muscle atrophy, uh, and this can be progressive over time. They typically also have uh, sensory neuronal hearing loss. They can have dementia. They can have optic atrophy and vision loss. Uh, And it's important to know that they can have cardiomyopathies and or conduction block. Uh, And so uh, can have um, uh, even sudden cardiac death, but certainly uh, arrhythmias. Uh, This is one of those maternally inherited uh, mitochondrial diseases. So you can take that one to the bank. Uh, This is due to point mutations in the mitochondrial DNA itself. Uh, But the phenotypes are not necessarily predictable, uh, but will include at least some degree of the things I mentioned. There is no directed treatment. Uh, Some people will try creatine supplementation, although the evidence is weak. Uh, That being said, it's probably not going to hurt anyone. So I think a lot of patients will go for it if you suggest it to them. But really, you're trying to manage the epilepsy and be supportive of the other multi-system issues these patients are facing. I see. the next one I think that will come up a lot uh, is MELAS, or mitochondrial myopathy, lactic acid, and strokes. Uh, I think this is kind of a misnomer. These patients aren't actually having strokes. They're having stroke-like episodes. So I tend to call it, uh, use that in the actual name. Uh, This is another one uh, that, again, is maternally inherited, and it's due to mutations in the mitochondrial DNA. Uh, Most of these patients present by the mid-teens and can actually be diagnosed with uh, severe Complicated or complex migraines because they get these headaches, they get nausea, vomiting, and then they have some sort of stroke-like episodes. So either, you know, hemiparesis, uh, hemifacial weakness, uh, hemianopsias, uh, sometimes even language deficits. Uh, but they start sort of in their mid-teens, and they don't really cause a lasting deficit. And that's why they're not true strokes. If you did an MRI down the road, you wouldn't see necessarily any flare changes correlate with these. Uh, but in the moment, they look for all intents and purposes, like they're having. A, That's a interesting. Drill. And do you yeah, know? It's, do you know
0: a, why? Like it, it could happen. Is it like a, kind of like a migraine-related process, or or is that God, I, clear? I, No,
1: Ask somebody smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I I, I try no, to I think couldn't about, find anyone. Yeah, yeah no, it's they're, they're all busy taking care of patients. But um, <laughs> you know, I, it's either I think that, or it's it's a focal metabolic uh, deficit, um, and we maybe we can do some research and include a little Absolutely. plug after we finish this podcast uh, before we, yeah, we put sure. it out for, for publication because I think it's worth both of us knowing but um mm-hmm. so it's it's uh important to know that exercise and infection can provoke these episodes and these are really things that are metabolically demanding right uh, and mm-hmm. remember that lactic acid or lactic acidosis is in the name and so as a rule these patients have elevated lactate in their serum you'll also actually see it in the CSF uh, and this is probably because they're not uh, effectively going through aerobic metabolism uh, through their mitochondria mm-hmm. due to the disordered uh, function. Again, really, there's no directed treatment. Some people will try creatine. Some people will try coenzyme Q supplementation. Evidence is very weak for both, but there are case reports or case series or non blinded studies. Uh, and it, otherwise, the treatment is really supportive in getting them through these episodes and uh, managing uh, some of their symptoms. But they really shouldn't That's cause fine. any lasting. You know, uh, stroke like deficits. These patients obviously can have myopathic changes and be progressively weak over time. So that's important to know. The other two that I think are worth knowing uh, are really sort of related to each other. I'll talk about the one that's a little uh, less complicated first, and that's progressive external ophthalmoplegia. This is probably one of the more focal mitochondrial disorders, really, because it is uh, uh, an ophthalmopyretic disorder. So these patients uh, will have. Usually in their uh, young adulthood, progressive onset of either ptosis or uh, extraocular muscle weakness. And sometimes it starts with one muscle and then progresses to more. But they can actually go on to develop pretty profound ophthalmoplegia, uh, sometimes fixed uh, diplopia, depending on how conjugate their ophthalmoplegia is, but also uh, very functionally limiting ptosis uh, to the point that they'll have uh, superior field hemianopsia from their perspective because they can't see past their totic eyelids. So uh, mm. this is really the only problem that they have if it's true PEO, progressive external ophthalmoplegia, and all you can really do is support them. So a lot of uh, patients will consider, and, and there are some op- to, uh, oculoplastic surgeons that will do this uh, for them, these uh, lid lifting surgeries uh, mm. to sort of manage this ptosis. They often will need prisms in their glasses to correct uh, for diplopia but often you know this can change over time and so they'll grow out of these prisms and need new ones Uh, it's unfortunately functionally very limiting uh, and there's not much you can do for it but they shouldn't have some any of the other systemic uh, issues that you see with other mitochondrial disorders yeah i see Uh, when they do you want to think about what's called kern sayer syndrome and this is really Mm -hmm. progressive external ophthalmoplegia plus so this also, uh, the classic triad is PEO, but you also have a pigmentary retinopathy and a cardiomyopathy with cardiac conduction deficits. But really, it's a more diffuse disorder. They can have proximal muscle weakness in the extremities. They can have cognitive difficulties. They can have dementia over time. They can have endocrinopathies uh, and all, a lot of the other things that you can see with mitochondrial disorders. So it's a much more disabling syndrome, uh, despite actually having similar genetic Uh, background, both PEO and Kern-Sayer are most commonly actually sporadic disorders. So they're due to uh, large deletions in the mitochondrial DNA uh, that really aren't necessarily inherited, and so you won't see a strong family history, although, again, there are exceptions to that rule, uh, and there are even autosomal forms. Uh, There is a little more evidence for creatine supplementation in Kern-Sayer than there is in some of the other mitochondrial disorders. And the, really the effect that you're hoping to see is increased strength uh, in terms of this proximal muscle weakness. It doesn't really affect the other systemic uh, dysfunctions, but it is important to know.
0: Well, excellent. That was a great review for mitochondrial uh, myopathies and maybe just kind of like highlighting the key words. Um, is, you know, with myoclonic epilepsy with ragged red fiber, as the name implies, um, but also you would have some systemic involvement with hearing loss, dementia, optic atrophy, cardiomyopathy, or even conduction block. Um, and with mitochondrial uh, myopathy, lactic acid, and stroke-like episodes, MILAS, you would have headache, stroke-like episodes, um, as well as uh, elevated lactate, and then progressive external ophthalmoplegia eye symptoms, really debilitating ptosis, and the systemic uh, um, uh, syndrome of it is Kern-Sayer syndrome, syndrome, uh, which really I plus. Uh, so uh, you mm-hmm. would have cardiomyopathy as well, cognitive difficulties, and proximal muscle weakness, and endocrinopathies. Um, thank you. This is honestly Good. the most I've been able to consolidate them in my head so thanks
1: for that <laughs> <laughs> and you know these are really interesting they're fortunately pretty rare uh, but it's good to have in the back of your mind and when you see one it's it's going to you know be fascinating i think because all of this will come back to you and you'll see really how important uh, these disorders are in terms of systemic effect amazing all
0: right, and then we can move on to more metabolic uh, myopathies. How about we uh, talk about benign infantile myopathy?
1: Yeah, so fortunately, this is benign. And we're, really, when they say benign in this syndrome, it's actually uh, reversible. Uh, it reverses itself. The reason we sort of include it in metabolic myopathies is because it is a mitochondrial disorder. So it's due to a cytochrome C oxidase deficiency. Very rare but important to know because it actually has a good outcome. So it presents like many of these other disorders with uh, a diffusely weak infant. Uh, you can have any of the other, really any of the other syndromes that you see with other mitochondrial disorders. So ataxia, uh, abnormal movements, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, vision changes, cognitive changes, uh, ptosis, extraocular weakness, uh, They usually have an elevated uh, lactate in the serum. There's usually an elevated CK as well. Uh, The thing that you'll see, though, is that by age two or three, they actually start to normalize. So the patients will uh, either be born weak or get weak very early in infancy, uh, tend to progress over about a year, year and a half, maybe two years to their nadir, and then start to spontaneously reverse. And I don't know if anyone really knows exactly what the cause of that reversal is. I imagine it has something to do with uh, the normal mitochondria uh, taking over or, you know, cytochrome C oxidase is coded in the mitochondrial DNA. So sometimes you can see this complementary function uh, where the normal uh, DNA is, is more heavily transcribed. You know, but fortunately, it reverses itself. That's great.
0: And then let's talk about the f- fatal um, version of
1: it. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So the fatal version, uh, unfortunately, does not reverse uh, and is usually fatal within uh, a year. Uh, So if, you know, a child that's concerning for this makes it past uh, a year to a year and a half, that actually is encouraging. But uh, what's interesting about this is it's a a mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome. Uh, And so the what happens actually is you lose mitochondrial DNA over time uh, and get progressively worse. And the reason this happens is uh, a number of the mutations are due to uh, or lead to dysfunction in. Uh, the nucleotide salvage process. And the most prominent is probably the TK2 mutation, uh, which is a mitochondrial salvage protein. And because mitochondria can't make their own uh, nucleotides from scratch and they have trouble importing these across the mitochondrial membrane, if you can't salvage nucleotides from mitochondrial DNA and, uh, you know, tRNA and those things, you actually run out over time. And so uh, your mitochondria essentially cease to function properly. And unfortunately, this happens fairly rapidly within a year But for all intents and purposes, early on can look just like benign infantile myopathy. Mm -hmm. And the common cause of death here is really respiratory failure uh, or complications from that because of weakness in the respiratory muscles. So why don't we pause there and we can pick up the next episode with mitochondrial and metabolic myopathies.
0: All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for part three.
1: See ya.